We are back in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We've taken a couple of weeks away from it. And so just a brief summary, Mark is writing the Gospel. Uh, He's relying largely on Peter as his source. Peter is one of the 12 disciples. Uh, Mark, most people believe, is writing to the church at Rome. And he's writing about the the story, the life, the ministry of Jesus. And we are in chapter 8, so we're about halfway through with Mark, and we're at this section that's really important, very pivotal, sort of this transitional. We're about to make a turn. The first half has been largely answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? And now we're about to make a pretty big turn and start to really focus on the question, what is it that he's come to do? And so we're going to see both of these themes in our text today. We're going to see Peter confessing correctly who Jesus is. He's the Christ. But we're also going to see Peter having to learn and be corrected on what it is that Jesus has come to do. So this is an important text. It's a classic text. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8 and please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to begin reading in verse 27, and this is the very inspired Word of God. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time that we have together in this gospel, in this book. I pray you'll use this time this morning to open our eyes to see correctly who Jesus is, what he does, and how we should respond to him faithfully as a result. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So first of all, we see who he is. Look at verse 27 with me. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is located about 25 to 30 miles north of the region of Galilee, This was an area that was largely pagan, largely non-Jewish. And uh, there was a, for example, there is a cave there. And there was this belief that the the god called Pan lived there, half goat, half man. And there were these temples, like pagan temples. And you can, when you go to Israel today, you can see the the remains and the foundation of the temples. And there, there was this huge face, this huge rock face And there's these uh, carved out, these sort of like windows or ledges, and they'd have idols sitting all over them. So a very idolatrous, pagan 
area, and it raises the question, why does Jesus go there? Why does he take his disciples on a field trip to Caesarea Philippi? And I think one of the answers is he's, he's continuing to teach them he's here for a universal mission. He's not just here for Jerusalem. He's here for all, even people who worship the god Pan. And as they're traveling, of course, Jesus is spending time with them, teaching them, and a part of the teaching we see in verse 27, on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. So Jesus knows the answer to the question, but what's he doing? He's teaching them. This is what a teacher does. And he goes, hey guys, who do people say I am? And they start rattling off these various answers. And notice all the answers are, are honorable titles. You know, people generally had a, a high view of Jesus. You know, people liked Jesus. The crowds flocked to him. So the general consensus was people liked him. They had honorable titles, but none of these titles is sufficient. None of them are correct. And so Jesus turns to the disciples, once again, teaching them, instructing them. Verse 29, he asks them, but who do you say that I am? This is the question. This is the million-dollar question. Who do you say that he is? And Peter answers. Peter's kind of the spokesman for the group. Peter answers verse 29, you are the Christ. Now, Mark, interestingly, doesn't tell us that Peter's correct. We're kind of left to just know that. But if you read Matthew's account, in Matthew's account, we learn that Matthew says, you know, yeah, he's right. Because in Matthew's account, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds and says, you are correct. And man didn't reveal this to you. God revealed this to you. And he says, you are Peter. You know, he gives him his name. You are Peter Petros. And on this rock, I will build my church. And I like to picture Jesus standing there in front of that big rock with all those idols. You know, they've got the image of the rock. And Jesus says, on this rock, I'll build my church. This confession. And, and I think we learned something. Jesus is building his church not in a particular area. It's not in Jerusalem per se. It's, it's, it's wherever the confession is found. Wherever you find people who confess he's the Christ, there you find Jesus building his church and advancing his church. But Peter correctly confesses, you are the Christ. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that he's the Christ? I just want to point out, Christ here is not his last name. We've become so accustomed to hearing the name Jesus Christ, we just kind of assume it's sort of his last name. Like, if you were looking it up in a phone book, you look under the seas. And that's just not the case, right? He, this is a title. He has many titles. This is one of the many titles. Jesus the Christ, right? And uh, Christ is a Greek term. In Hebrew, the same term is Messiah. They mean the same thing, just two different languages. One Christ, one Messiah. Uh, it means the anointed one or anointed one. Uh, this could be, in the Old Testament, anointed people were typically either prophets, priests, or kings. And I think in this context, it mainly has a kingly connotation. You are the king. You're God's king, the king who would be the son of David, who would rule on the throne of David forever. And uh, so here we have Peter correctly confessing Jesus is the king, the Christ, God's son. That's what the whole first half of Mark has been about. Who is Jesus? And we saw in chapter 4, the disciples actually asked the question when he calmed the storm, who then is this that the sea and the waves obey him? And that's the question. Who is he? And now we learn the answer. The disciples correctly answering the question. He is the Christ. And in verse 30, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
We're going to see in a few minutes why it might be that Jesus says, guys, I want you to keep a lid on this for now. But I think it'd be, I thought it'd be helpful and interesting for us to consider, how do people answer this question today? Various groups of people, how do they answer the question, who then do you say that I am? For example, Muslims. What do Muslims say about who Jesus is? Muslims actually have a somewhat positive view of Jesus. The Quran talks about Jesus. Uh, he is kind of a prophet of God, according to Islam. Uh, he's created, kind of like Adam was created. So they think Jesus was created in a miraculous kind of way, in the same kind of way Adam was created. But he's not God, according to Islam. What about Judaism? The vast majority of Jews do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, there are some Jews who do. We call them Messianic Jews. The vast majority do not. They reject the idea that Jesus is God. His claim to be God is considered as blasphemy, according to most Jews. Uh, what about Eastern religions, such as Hinduism? Uh, Hinduism believes in many gods, and when you tell them about Jesus as God, they typically are like, that's fine, just add him to the others. And so he just is one of the gods, uh, according to most Hindus. And so uh, they would reject the idea that he is the creator God, and he alone is the God. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, claim to be followers of Jesus, claim to have a high view of Jesus, but they don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe that God created Jesus, and that therefore Jesus, the Son of God, has not always existed. What about Protestant mainline Christianity, liberal Christianity? They typically believe that Jesus is not uniquely God, but that he's an important religious figure, an important religious teacher who taught very important things, that Christians and all people should follow, especially the moral teachings. And I think this is how most Americans generally view Jesus. Most Americans, you know, they're, they're not anti-Jesus. They like his teachings. They think you ought to follow his teachings. But I think if you were to press him and say, is he God's unique son in whom you must believe in order to be right with God? I think vast majority of Americans would say, I don't know about that. Right? And I just think that we need to notice the claim that Jesus is making, the claim that the Bible is making. Jesus is God's unique son, God's unique king. He is himself God. He has always been God, always existed as God. And that's the whole reason why he came to earth. He came to earth to make God known. And the big key question is, who do you say he is? And one day, every single person is going to have to face their creator and answer this question. Who do you say he is? Who did you say he was in your life? We are all going to be judged based on this question. Who then do you say he is? And it's such an important question. You could hypothetically get every other question wrong and be okay. You can't get this one wrong. You've got to get this one right. Who do you say Jesus is? We first see who he is. Secondly, we see what he does. And who he is and what he does are closely related. It's not like Jesus came to earth merely to be known as the king. He came to earth as the king on a mission to do something as the king. And so he's a unique king. He's the most unique king. Unlike any other king in this way, he came on a specific mission. And we see that in verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. 
So notice Mark tells us he began to teach this. He hasn't been teaching this up to this point. They're like two and a half years into the ministry. And Jesus has just been emphasizing who he is. But now he's starting to tell them, guys, here's what I've come to do. I've come to suffer. I've come to die. Why is he just now telling them? I think because they haven't even gotten the first part yet, who he is. They've just now gotten who he is. They couldn't handle the second part. But now he's going to start telling them. In verse 32, he's going to start telling them plainly. We said last week, one of the marks of faithful Christian ministry is plain speaking. Plain, explicit, clear. This is what we believe. This is what we don't believe. This is right. This is wrong. We don't want anybody leaving saying, they were kind of ambiguous. I'm not really sure what they believe about that. We want everybody to know exactly what we believe about the key things that we, we believe. And Jesus is starting to speak clearly, plainly, guys, I'm not only the Christ, but you need to know something. I'm here to die, and I'm going to die. Now, he also says, I'm going to rise again. And he's going to be really clear about this. And in Mark's gospel, two more times, he's going to explicitly tell them this. I'm the Christ, I'm here to die, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. He'll say it again in Mark chapter 9. He'll say it again in Mark chapter 10. He knows why he's here. This is why he's here. This is the mission. Everything else he does, he does a lot of other things, but this is what he's come to do. He's come to die. Verse 31, I want you to notice this important word. He says, I must die. This must happen. I have to. This is why I came. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. I have to do this, guys. This must happen. This is God's plan. It will happen. It must happen. And it must happen the way it's going to happen. That's why in verse 31, he's giving details. I will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. He's not just going to die in any way. He's not just going to be killed by any old person in any old way. He's going to be killed in this way. It has to happen this way. He comes to his own and his own kill him. He knows it's going to happen. It must happen. And he's telling his disciples, though they don't get it. And they're not going to get it until after it happens. Notice how Peter responds to this teaching. Verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is one of those scenes I kind of would like to see. If he just loved to be a fly on the wall. The language that's used here for rebuke is really strong language. It's the same language that's used when it talks about Jesus rebuking demons and casting demons out of people. So picture Peter, like Jesus is telling him, guys, I'm about to die. And Peter says, uh, Jesus, I need to talk to you for a second. You know, come, come over here with me. I'll do it away from the crowd so I don't embarrass you too much. You know, but I need to set you straight on something. Like, you're mistaken about this. You know, you're right about being the Christ. But you, there's something you're missing. Like you didn't get your Bible, you didn't get theology, you didn't get taught. And, and I've been taught since I was a kid. I know like the Christ doesn't suffer. God's king doesn't suffer. God's king rules on the throne of David forever. So I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're the Christ, but you're wrong. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. That's not what happens to the Christ. That's not what happens to God's king. By the way, I think this is the reason why Jesus says, hey guys, I don't want you to go public yet. One of the reasons, like, they don't get it. They're clueless at this point. So you don't want people who are clueless going public about your mission, right? Look at how Jesus responds to this. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, 
for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus takes this teaching opportunity to put Peter in his place, and he does it in front of everyone. Why? Because I think everyone's probably thinking what Peter's saying. Peter's just the only one saying it. And so Jesus is telling them all, hey guys, this is satanic. What Peter's just said is satanic. Get behind me, Satan. Now why is it satanic? I mean, Peter's got his best interest in mind, right? And the answer is because it's not God's plan. God's plan has been from the beginning for his son to suffer. As soon as God made a plan to redeem people, as soon as God committed himself to redeem a fallen people, this was the only way it could happen for him to send his son to pay the penalty. So this is the plan for the son to suffer. It must happen. It has to happen. And what is Satan tempting Jesus to do all along the way, from the very beginning to the very end? What's the temptation? You don't need to go to a cross. Why don't you shortcut the cross? If you are who you claim to be, if you're God's king, don't suffer. Don't spend 30 years down here suffering with people. Don't spend three years of public ministry getting rejected. And for sure, don't go to a cross. Why would you do that? If you're the king with all the authority and power, don't do that. Prove who you are. Come down from the cross. That's the temptation. God doesn't want you to suffer, does he? God wouldn't have his one and only son suffer. God wouldn't allow his people to suffer. He's a loving God. He's in control. You wouldn't suffer, right? That's, Jesus says that is satanic. That's a satanic mindset that says God wouldn't want his people to suffer. He's, he must suffer. He has to suffer. That's what he's called to do. And so Jesus says your mind is on the things of man, not the things of God. And Peter, just point out, Peter goes from having one of the greatest moments of his whole life to one of the worst moments of his whole life. You know, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's right, amen. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. God the Father revealed it to you. You're Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. I mean, that's gotta be one of those high moments of his life. And then like seconds later, get behind me, Satan. You know, his eyes are opened correctly to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the King. But his eyes have not yet been opened to the fact that the king must suffer. He must suffer. He has to. I used to work at a camp in the summers, and uh, we had to figure out a creative way to have punishments for the kids. And uh, one of the ways we'd punish them is had them do push-ups. And I'm not sure if that's acceptable today. That might be really frowned upon. So if it is, I'm sorry. But... Uh, <laughs> We, uh, we would have them do push-ups when they messed up. And one time, the whole cabin messed up. And I thought, well, this will be a teaching opportunity. So I said, guys, I'm going to take the punishment for you. Like, I'm going to do the push-ups so you don't have to, in your place. And they're all like looking at each other like, oh, man, this is great. We love this, you know. We don't have to do the push-ups. You do them. Yeah, let's do it. And so I start doing the push-ups, and they're all watching me and you know, at first they're all kind of laughing, and, oh, this is great. And after a while, they start to see me struggle, and my arms are shaking a little bit. And they start saying, okay, that's enough. Like, you're done. Don't do any more. You don't have to do that. You don't really have to do this right now. And, of course, that's the point I was trying to teach them. There was a penalty. There was a crime that was committed. And there has to be a payment. There has to be a penalty. That's the way the world works. It's a moral universe. It's morally ordered and structured. When there's a wrong, somebody has to pay the penalty for the wrong, right? Just a simple example. I, I live next door to a park, and I can imagine somebody hitting a baseball through a window and doing some damage, and imagine that happens, and they come knock on the door and do the right thing, and they say, 
we're sorry, we want to pay for it. You know, we owe you, let's say, $100. We did $100 worth of damage. Here's $100. I could take their $100 and go repair it. I could, I could say, I forgive you the debt. You don't, I'm not going to uh, l- consider that you owe me this. I will pay for it. I'm the one that lives next to the park. I will pay the penalty. Or I could say, I'm not going to fix it, and I'm just going to allow $100 worth of damage to exist in our house and have a big hole that when it hails, hail comes in and rain comes in. Right? E- either way, there is a $100 debt that has to be paid. Either the person who did it or me if I decide to be merciful and gracious or I just live with it. But it has to be paid. And in a similar kind of way, when somebody wrongs you, you've been wronged. There's been a moral wrong that's happened. You can say, you know what? You wronged me. I'm going to retaliate. I'm going to wrong you. I'm going to get back at you. I'm going to take it out on you. Which, by the way, if you go down that road, it'll never end. Or you could say, you know what? I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to absorb it. You've wronged me. Instead of retaliating, I'm going to absorb it. And the main point I'm making here is that the message of the cross is this. You and I have wronged the Creator. We have an infinite debt before Him because of our sin. And He chose, by His grace and mercy, to pay the penalty for the debt that we owe Him. And He paid it in the body and the life of His one and only Son. So God has willingly chosen to absorb the penalty in his son for us. That's the glorious message of the cross. He's not, Jesus is not only the king, he's the king who had to suffer and came to suffer so you and I could be forgiven and could follow him and know him as the king. So he's, here's the incredible thing. He's the king of kings and therefore you ought to bow down and worship him even if he didn't provide redemption and forgiveness for you just because he's the king. You ought to bow down and worship him just because Jesus is the king. But on top of that, what makes it even more incredible, he's a king who suffered for you. He suffered to provide forgiveness and redemption for you. So he's not only the king that I have to follow and bow down and say he's the Lord, he's also the kind of king that compels me to want to bow down and follow him and say he's the Lord. Who he is and what he's done. And this brings us third to talk about what we will do if we are, in fact, his. This passage is largely about who Jesus is and what he's done, but this passage is also about what we will do if we really are his. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There are three commands or imperatives in our passage today, and they're all three right here. Deny, take up, follow. And you actually can't see it real easily in the English because it's in the third person. So it's like this. If anyone would, let him. And let him just doesn't sound real commanding. Let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross. Let him follow me. It's, but it's more of a command. So the English language doesn't quite get it in the way that we can feel it. It's more like this. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus, then you must, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And I just want you to notice, Jesus is not saying like, hey, these are for the really committed people. How many of you want to be really serious, committed Christians? Or how many of you want to be, you know, clergy, called kind of Christians? Or how many of you want to be like the spirit-filled Christians? 
or the non-carnal, the real serious ones, the ones who are going to really get the rewards in heaven. If you want to really get the rewards, you need to take up your cross, deny yourself, no. This is just bare, basic bones, mere Christianity. This is just 101. Like, you're going to be a follower of Jesus? Are you going to be a Christian? This is what Jesus says to you. You must deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Let's consider these three. First of all, deny yourself. You can't live solely for you. You're not the king anymore. He's the king. You have a new king in your life. You serve at the pleasure of the king. And I just point out on Memorial Day weekend, I'm very grateful for those people who were willing to deny themselves and lay down their lives literally for us to have freedom that we have in this country. They denied themselves. They did the first of these three things that Jesus commands us to do. Deny yourself. But secondly, Jesus says, take up your cross. Now, this is interesting. The disciples in their minds wonder what this looked like or meant because Jesus hasn't yet taken up his cross. We read it and we know exactly what the picture in our minds. But for them, I mean, there's been tons of crucifixions that I'm sure they've seen. It was a common form of Roman punishment. I'm sure they've seen people taking up their cross and going to be crucified. So they have some image, but they got to be thinking, that's kind of weird, take up my cross? And of course, Jesus is going to drive it home when he actually literally takes up his cross. And he's showing them, this, this is what I'm talking about, guys. Die to self. Take up your cross. And by the way, Luke's gospel says, take up your cross daily. So I take that to mean Jesus is speaking figuratively here. We're supposed to take up our cross daily, every day. Every day I should be asking the question, what does it look like for me to take up my cross today? Or this situation, I'm in a situation right now. It's difficult, I don't know what to do. What might it look like for me to take up my cross and follow Jesus in this situation? That's a great question to ask yourself. The next time you're confronted with a difficult challenge, what do I do? What would Jesus want me to do? How should we deal with this? What would it look like for me to take up my cross and follow Jesus in this situation? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, Jesus says, follow me. I'm not telling you to do something I haven't already done. That's the kind of leader he is. He doesn't say, you guys go do this. He says, I am going to the cross. I am laying down my life. I am setting aside my rights for, for the greater good, for you. And Jesus says, follow me. Follow me to the cross. Follow me to my death. Well, why? Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to follow you to a cross? Why would I want to follow you to your death? That doesn't sound like a positive thing. Well, the rest of the passage is going to answer that question. Why would I want to take up my cross and follow Jesus to my death? Look at verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? In other words, what's the alternative? So you say, I'm not going to take up my cross. I'm not going to deny myself. I'm not going to follow Jesus to his death. Okay, then what are you going to do? The alternative is, I'm going to live as if I'm the king. I'm going to call the shots. I'm not going to get on my hands and knees and follow someone else to a cross and follow him as if he's the king. I'm going to be the king. And Jesus says, okay, let's just hypothetically say you're going to live as if you're the king. And let's just hypothetically say you gain the whole world. 
like you gain everything you want. You, you're literally the king of the world. You got all the money you want, all the fame you want, all the reputation you want, whatever it is that's kind of your thing. All the money, all the fame, all the pleasure. It, you experience it all. You're the king. For some people, I just want to get to a point in my life where I don't have to do anything. I can just check out and have, do nothing and be responsible for nothing. Okay, that's your dream. Let's say at the end of it, you accomplish it and you gain everything you want to accomplish and then what happens? You die. At whatever age, let's say 100, you die. And now what? You face your creator. You face the rest of eternity. Now you've got to give an account. Who did you say my son was? Right? What does it gain a man? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet in the end forfeit your soul? In other words, spend an eternity apart from God, under his wrath, under his judgment. It's not worth it in the end. That's the point. Uh, it's not worth it. The alternative to following Jesus is not worth it. Even if you were hypothetically able to be the king of the world, it's not worth it. Don't go down that path. Jesus is warning you. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is just another motivation to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. If you don't, it's because at some level you're ashamed of him. You're embarrassed about him. You don't want to die to yourself. You want to be the king. You don't want to be submitted to Jesus. You don't want to be associated with Jesus. That's embarrassing. What if people think you're kind of a religious freak? You know, you're kind of a nut. You don't want your neighbors thinking that. You don't want people thinking that, right? So what does he say? He says, okay, you're embarrassed about me. You don't want to associate with me. You're kind of ashamed of me. Guess what happens when I come back in all my glory as the king, the king that Peter thought was coming the first time? Jesus is coming back again in the same kind of way Peter thought he was coming. It's just going to be different the second time than it was the first. And Jesus says, guess what? You're ashamed of me now? Kind of embarrassed about me now? Don't really want to talk about me now? Kind of ashamed of the gospel now? Kind of want to keep it silent? I'll be embarrassed and ashamed of you when I come back in glory. Here's the point. You don't want the king of the universe ashamed of you. You don't want the king, the king, the king of kings, to be embarrassed about you. So it's not worth it. You're not the king. Don't pretend to be. You're not the king. Don't act like it. He's the king. Humble yourself. Submit yourself to him. I want you to notice Jesus is not saying here, come on, guys, just pray this prayer. Please just check this box. Please just walk this aisle. Please just raise your hand and say you'll be a follower of me. Jesus is saying, no. This is the minimum. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Do it, first of all, just because it's right. I'm the king. I'm the king of kings, so follow me as the king. Bow down. It's right. It's true. But secondly, if that doesn't motivate you enough, secondly, do it because I'm the kind of king who has suffered for you. I came to lay down my life for you. I set aside my rights, though I didn't need to. I set aside my rights for you so that you could be mine. Does it, does it mean that life's going to always be easy? No. Does it mean that taking up my cross is sometimes going to lead to my death? Sometimes. Does it mean I'm going to have to sacrifice a lot? Pride, rights, can't cling to my rights? Yeah. 
Is that going to be humiliating sometimes? Yeah. Well, then is it worth it? Yeah. Because on the other side is life. And on the other side of the cross is victory. And on the other side of the cross is resurrection. What's the alternative? You're going to say no to this. What are you going to say yes to? You're going to gain the whole world hypothetically and in the end forfeit your soul? It's not worth it. Don't go down that path. That's foolish. Jesus is the king. Make sure you're trusting him. And by trusting him, I mean make sure you're denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. He's worth it. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you confessing this is difficult to hear that we're supposed to follow Jesus to a cross. It's difficult because our pride and our flesh and everything inside of us says we want to be the king. We want to call the shots. We don't want somebody telling us what to do and what not to do, telling us to set aside our rights. But Father, we're reminded in this passage that's exactly what you've done. You've called us to this. But you've not only called us to this, you've sent your son who experienced this for us. He's the king. And I pray you'd open our eyes to see he is the king. I pray you'd open the eyes of everyone in this room, watching online, to see accurately, rightly, Jesus is the king. Even if he hypothetically hadn't ever done anything in terms of coming here, he's still the king that we should follow and worship. But yet, though he's the king, he did sacrifice everything and come and suffer for us, laying down his life to secure our salvation. I pray that would melt every heart and that would motivate us to take up our cross and follow him wherever it might lead. If it leads to embarrassment, if it leads to having to say no to something, if it leads to death, I pray you'd find us faithful to following Jesus to the cross because we know on the other side of the cross, because of what he's done, is victory and resurrection and life and glory. We look forward to that day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.